Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we talked about the scam that is the NFT, dove into herbalism, and chewed over a sinister Christian gospel. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and brand new music from Mike Lust. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for May 28, 2021. Bad at Sports spoke to Ben Davis from Artnet about the newest art world sensation, non-fungible tokens. Are NFTs the future the hype demands, or are they just another grift? Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11. To help us wade through these very interesting waters uh, is Artnet's news national art critic since 2016, Ben Davis. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, no stranger to the show, um, but I'm right. glad to meet you personally here. Um Crazy stuff's been going on with uh, sort of the art market, right? One of the uh, all time. time hold, hold on, hold, time. hold on, hold on, hold on. We have a really important thing to touch. I wore my Seattle shirt for Ben. Ben, can you see me in my Seattle shirt? There's little yeah, trees. Yeah, I, I, I see it now. You know, I there's like a Yeti. Yeah, it's yeah. There's uh, Sasquatch I, right there. Yeah, I wore yeah. this thing for you, man. You should have let me know I'm wearing zebras. Like I totally am in like, like an incorrect. idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Uh, now, well, you know, now you know, back famous, to you. Famous uh, Seattle, Chicago fact, right? Is that it's windier in Chicago, in Seattle than it is in Chicago. And it rains more in Chicago than it is in Seattle. <laughs> no. That's, that's entirely possible. Entirely possible. So, um, Ben, there's so many things to talk about, but I think we just need to kind of jump right into uh, kind of the strangeness of what's going on in the art market these days uh, and the move to NFTs. Now, um, I'm a pretty technical guy and have somewhat of an understanding of how, of how NFTs work, uh, but I know a lot of people in our audience don't even really know what we're talking about um, when we're talking about NFTs or non-fungible tokens, and more importantly, the fact that now uh, NFT based works are selling for tens of millions of dollars out on the market and uh, prompting all kinds of sort of copycat works and derivative works and complaints and land grabs and cash rushes and all this stuff. Um, so maybe could, could you just let us, what the hell is it? Sure. Great question. Uh, uh, and, and, <laughs> and despite the fact that, you know, millions of dollars are being moved around uh, in NFTs and they're reported on far and wide, like they're doing sketches on Saturday Night Live about them. I mean, I, I actually think that it's 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 not a lot of people understand them, um, what they're actually dealing with. So I think um, if you wanted to, I don't know, give the elevator pitch for the NFT concept, it would be something like, oh, it's it's a way to take um, uh, digital images and turn them into a unique um, thing and sell them. But that's actually not exactly what they are. And that's one of the things that really interested me about them is that actually um, the way I describe it to kind of make it uh, concrete to someone who's familiar with the web, but maybe not familiar with the, the deeper and woolier parts of blockchain or cryptocurrency is that an NFT, rather than being a way to sell uh, like a digital work of art, is something more similar to selling someone the bit.ly link to a digital work of art (laughs) that it, 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 because, you know, I think it's a big misconception that people are buying digital images somehow. Um, And that's really not what's happening. What people are doing and what uh, NFTs are, it's a way to make 
um, a kind of a unique token or identifier, something like a trading card of an artwork, but even a little more abstract than that, like a unique identifying uh, uh, signature that allows you to say that you have the unique link almost to, to a particular digital object. So I, I kind of, when I think about these things, I flash back to, I don't know if you watched infomercials in the 80s, but the Franklin Mint, right, which would, uh, you know, mint all these sort of commemorative presidential plates or coins or all these things. But they always let you know that, you know, whatever thing that you were buying came with a certificate of authenticity, sure right? And that's what the NFT is. You got a digital file, but it seems that we're doing some crazy math just to give you a certificate of authenticity that what you have is special. I think that's more or less a good way to say it. You know, it's, it's essentially a digital, um, a dif- digital certificate of authenticity. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially a unique, a unique, uh, yeah, a unique digital signature. And that's really what people are moving money around, you know, through they're taking big amounts of digital currency cryptocurrency um which empowers this kind of uh, operation and moving it into these sort of unique uh digital strings of strings of right numbers. so so then i guess the next question that our audience might be asking is well then why do we care right uh and i think probably what got a lot of people's attention was uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, a work by Beeple was sold for $69 million at Christie's, correct? Yeah, two months ago now. Or two, two, two months, months ago? Two months and change. I know, it seems like just yesterday. Um, but uh, two, two, months, two months ago and change, March 10th, I think. Um, yeah. So, so, what, so what was the work and why and how'd that all shake out? And why Beeple? And okay, why would well that, someone I, I, choose that name? <laughs> Well, um, I, I, I think that's actually a good place to, to start um, is like, who's Beeple? Um, because um, well, he was not a name well known to me, he does have a, a, a big, a big audience. And I think that's an interesting thing to know. I think that's an important thing to know for like artists who are observing this conversation, that I think people see, you know, this name come out of nowhere, uh, Beeple. Um, which is the you know pen name or art artistic name of a of a guy named uh, Mike Winkleman who is based in North Carolina, and they're like, oh, this guy came out of nowhere. He's he's making bank. Maybe I could too. Um, and uh, um, I think it's sort of important to know that this guy's been around for a really long time. He has a huge audience. He's like two million plus Instagram followers. He has a lot of cachet in um, digital uh, music circles, for instance. My friends who make digital music were, were aware of him all the way back in, in 2012. Um, and he is um, kind of associated with something approximating an art movement, which is the everydays movement, that he, there's a number of people who've made this kind of pact with themselves to create something every day. Um, and as a way to kind of inspire creativity, online creativity. And um, the work that sold at Christie's is just, it's, again, it's weird. It's a little hard to explain because in addition to being this NFT, uh, so, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, a digi- having being based on a digital, on the blockchain uh, as a sort of a digital 
unique having a unique digital signature. It's a kind of an odd work itself. It's called Every Day is the First Five Thousand Days, and what it did is it took um, five thousand the first five thousand images he posted as an everyday artist, and then put them together into a dig- digital do a single digital uh, mosaic file, which then that file was sold as a single work of art that the you know the 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 collector who bought it would get a, a very large version. And somebody wanted that bad enough that they could, um, that they spent uh, uh, 60, the equivalent of $69 million in Ethereum, which is a cryptocurrency. But, you know, it's an interesting thing because it contains in theory, all of his, um, all of the images from his first 5,000 days of activity, but there's nothing stopping him to, to, slice that pile of creativity up in any other kind of ways. The same people who bought the, 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 this, this work bought 20 other works last December for $2.2 million. Um, you could, he could, you know, he could, he could make other versions of this that are just, you know, all the work from every January or every April fool's day or every leap year or whatever you want to do it. There's a, it's all just um, a, a unique signature corresponding to like a totally arbitrary way of, yes. of categorizing this, this material. So there's not even like copyright, right? You know, I mean, he could, he could do 5,000 and then 49 and then 49.98 or, or he could put them in a video. Like they don't actually own image rights or anything like that. They just have this. Yeah. Unless, unless, form. unless otherwise stated uh, uh, people who buy NFTs don't get anything besides that digital contract. Like this is a kind of circular thing saying like I'm buying the right to say I bought this. Boys from I-94 chatted to Max Basora, the author of the ornately titled The Adventures and Misadventures of the Extraordinary and Admirable Joan Orpee, Conquistador and Founder of New Catalonia. Whew! 
Vizora chatted about his satire of Spanish literature, Catalonian politics, and of course Cervantes. On I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show. It airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. We're speaking with Max Basora. He is speaking to us live from Spain. His new book is called, and I've got to take a deep breath before I say this, The Adventures and Misadventures of the Extraordinary and Admirable Jean Orpi, Conquistador and Founder of New Catalonia which is a mouthful. And it's a great book. I think we all enjoyed it, and we were really looking forward to having you on. Max, thanks so much for making time on this Thursday night to chat with us. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Max, um, it's incredible. Uh, this book, um, I don't know if I'm you know, giving away too much, but it seems like to me this was a kind of a modern retelling of Don Quixote done in a very... Uh, I found it at least very witty, kind of uh, linguistically uh, hyperbolic, uh, very kind of acrobatic style. Um, I don't know enough, candidly, about Catalonian politics, and I wondered if we could just start there, because American listeners are probably not necessarily familiar with the political undercurrents in Spain, and I think your book kind of references some of that and i just wonder if you could give our, our listeners a little primer on why first of all catalonia is not necessarily spain though it is in spain and and why that's important well i'm not a historian but i, I will try <laughs> to explain a, a resume of, of the situation um, um so at the age what where the novel is placed which is the 17th century um catalonia was um under a kingdom, right? And there was two kingdoms in Spain, uh, the Castilla kingdom and the Aragon kingdom. And then later on in the history, the two kingdoms get together and, you know, it, it was uh, a one kingdom only, which we are, uh, still have, uh, still are in that kingdom. Um, and so Catalonia, Catalonia was always a, a nation itself, but never a country, right? Um, but uh, the problem is that when you have only one kingdom in a country, well, uh, they tend to uh, to regulate this country by using one language, for example, and one god, and you know, and one leader, <laughs> and that's what kingdoms do, or empires. Uh, which is probably uh, similar. And so that's what the Spanish kingdom did since the yeah 16th, 17th, uh, 16th century or 17th century, which they conquer uh, the so-called America and they impose the same king that he was in Spain, the same god that he was in Spain and the same leader, right? And so with this in mind, uh, still we are in the same situation here in Spain, we still have uh, a king uh, who apparently don't, doesn't rule, but, you know, it's a figure that, that it rules. And, and all the languages in Spain um, are a minor language except the Spanish language, right? So Catalonia always feel, felt like, you know, that they, they have their own culture, their own language, there are different sense of humor than the Spanish ones or, you know, different culture backgrounds and music and whatever. No? So we always felt like a different nation from Spain. Right. But still, we are in the same under the same kingdom. And that's why we are against the, the king of Spain, basically. You know, I mean, the French is 
uh, resolved that uh, many centuries ago by cutting the head of the king and it became a republic, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Spain, it didn't happen. I don't know why. You know, maybe because we didn't have the guillotine. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, the, the only, I mean, I think most Americans, again, I, I know Spain best, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but by, from football, you know, watching Barcelona play, watching yeah. Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid. I, I do know, however, that there is a major Catalan separatist movement. And I know that the main government of Madrid has been trying very hard to put that down. In fact, jailing politicians and uh, doing things that even in America would, would seem strange. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I, I did get some of the overtones of that in your book. You know, this idea that the conquistadors who were going to the Americas were trying to take this very flawed and kind of crazy <laughs> way of governing to a whole new world that uh, was not exactly willing to go along with that. Well, the situation here, uh, the political situation and the separatism or nationalism here uh, starts in the 19th century, more or less. And uh, th there's a movement movement that 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 it, it, it has been increased the last uh, 10 years. Um, because of the injustice of the uh, Spanish legal system and and all these uh, language issues or cultural issues and whatever. Uh, I'm not really part of it, but uh, for example, my parents or a lot of my friends are really getting to it. Uh, I'm an anarchist, so I don't believe in <laughs> in politicians or countries or borders. You know, for me, the world should be one and that's it, you know. Uh, but um, because I think that nationalism always tends to war and confrontation, you know. If you think like this and I think like this and I believe in that ideology, you know, or that king or that politician, you know, I'm going to fight with you against you. Uh, and I don't, I, don't, I don't believe in that. But still, nevertheless, that's my personal opinion. <laughs> but <laughs> general opinion, um, well, the general General in Catalonia, yeah, is uh, actually it's the half of population who believes or who thinks that that Catalonia should be separate from Spain and create their own state, which it's okay if they think like this, and I respect that. Uh, I'm not against that, and and probably you know I'm more against the the Spanish nationalism. Because the Spanish nationalism is, is much worse because it, it, it starts with the conquer, with the conquest of America, right? And and they have still nowadays the same the same mentality of uh, impose one language and impose one way of thinking and uh, one ideology, you know. And they are still in that in that move, in that in that move, in that way of thinking, right? And, and in that way, Catalonia is a little bit different. Uh, it's more modern, it's more for Catalonia is, in history, it has been more connected to France, for example, you know, and the artists and the music and everything is it's more, and I don't know, a little bit more open and, uh, I don't know, free mind, right? And Spain still lives in that, you know, in, in that conquer style of, yeah, we rule all this country, whatever, right? And so it was very interesting to see uh, when I was uh, about to write this novel that 
there was a, a guy called Juan Orpi who actually uh, went to America and uh, and uh, tried to to rule like a kingdom there under the Spanish government, but he was a Catalan. Because the funny thing is that Catalans, it was forbidden for Catalans to go to America uh, during the conquest. Um, because uh, there was a, a law in that time or kind of a law that said, no, only Spaniards from Castilla and Sevilla and the south of Spain, they can go to America. But Catalans still are into the other kingdom that there was in Spain back then, right? So there, it was forbidden for them to go to America. So Juan Urpi, what he did was to, um, I don't know how to say that in English, but um, to, to, to transform in, into a Spanish uh, person. Uh, I don't know how to say that in English. Like, uh, yeah, I think that I think that's right. You know, yeah. made himself yeah. over yeah. into a, a conversal. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. conversal. Conversion. Well, Conversion. there's a there's a a placard in the novel, so to speak. It's it's printed and it says uh, about the the ship that's going to America. It says embarking prohibited to Moors, conversos, or reconciled Jews, black slaves, half breeds, mulattoes, or Berbers, heretics, apostates, Lutherans, and the sons of such. Also denied passage are foreigners, gypsies, criminals, and lawyers. Only old Christians accepted. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, almost everyone everyone was excluded to go to yeah. <laughs> America, but then everybody went to America anyway, you know, because they need people. They needed the, the people there and to you know to conquer basically and so and and the story of this Juan Urpi that I that I wrote about it is is real so this guy goes there and and he um uh he, he like uh, uh goes up in the military rank yes yeah, can you yeah. say that yeah yeah and then and then he has the capacity of uh conquer a territory and call it the new catalonia which for Spaniards was like, what? Who is this guy? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they take it. They take the territory from him. You know, so so that was like a a, a parallel history history from the real history here in Spain. You know that uh, that Catalonia was also like uh, you know, it was impossible for Catalonia to become a state, right? So it was the same history, but uh, four centuries ago. You know. Chapter 7, in which we learn of the arrival of the six friends to the city of Seville, and Joan Orpi receives some bad tidings. The five friends, plus a homunculus, finally reach the city of Seville. It was all flower-filled balconies, narrow cobblestone streets, churches with gold and polychrome altars and Solomonic columns. It was all immobilized by a lethal heat that made the excrement and urine on the streets boil with an unbearably noxious stench. Our band led their horses up, up, up a long, narrow street of white houses crowned with a small church. Then they went down an even narrower street to the Torre del Oro, and from there to the Puerto del Arena. A raging sun beat down, and throughout that entire trajectory they didn't see a single soul. The city seemed to be abandoned. But as soon as the sun set behind the mountains and the chiming of the bells of Geralda were heard, the whole city suddenly filled with people and the roar of human life. Royal soldiers, hidalgos, gentlemen, ladies of the upper bourgeoisie, black slaves imported from Africa, 
natives from the Indies wearing loincloths and feathers on their heads who looked at everything with terrorized eyes, carriages and carts passing up and down, taverns opening their doors, churches ringing their bells, sopistas singing amusing syllogisms for their sopa boba, villains plotting swindles beneath bridges, sailors flirting with ladies of the night, and citizens of a thousand different nations. What a lot of people there be in this city, and such rejoicing, exclaimed our hero, where so many people came from not even God knows, but the city of Seville turned out to be a very lively, jovial place, a marvel where it seemed all dreams could be realized. Or P and his friends entered one of many taverns that lined a square, where they heard a music entirely new to their ears, with intense guitar strumming, shouts, faces that clenched and softened, shrieks and vibrant stomps. A dancer moved her skirt as if two flags were waving at once, and a man bellowed as if his liver were pulling from his mouth, and everyone accompanied the musicians with rhythmic hand clapping. When Orpi asked Valle del Omar what sort of music that was, the Moor answered, Fela Mangu, mine friend, the song of the Moors and the journeyman gypsies. Thou dost call it Falamangu? asked Orpi. Yes, flamenco, or some such, he said. When Martelina, Del Omar, and Grau had some tapas and Tribule the Dwarf joined in with a dancer, our hero headed, thinking positively and wasting no time, to the local government office. He was prepared to ask for the job that his former mentor in Barcelona, the Sephardi Yehuda Aberbanel, had assured him his letter of recommendation would secure him. When Orpi reached the secretary, he removed his hat in a wide bow and said, Hello, esteemed secretary. My name is Zinho Ernesto, not Zecretary. Very well. Ernesto. I consent by Manuel de Rubiola of Barcelona, bearing a letter of commendation for the post as administrator to the royal tobacco shops, he said in Catalan-inflected Spanish. The secretary Ernesto laughed so hard he almost choked. Looky here, Catalan, the man whose name thou bandy about here be a huckster and a Jew. He wanted by the law, understand? If he shows his face in Javille, he shan't live long. Art thou saying I don't get the job? asked Orpi. I have a law degree, eh? I can speak with whomever's in charge around hither. Law degree, schma degree, skedaddle. When our hero returned, entirely woebegone, to where his friends were waiting for him, he found Martelina the Divina in a sword fight with five rogues at once and the tavern in shambles. Wouldst thou mind telling me what the hayek be going on here? asked Orpi, fighting by the young woman's side. Thy friend, the dwarf, she said, stabbing an opponent. He groped his dance partner, and now thirty of her brothers, cousins, and uncles be intent on cutting us down to size to safeguard her honor. It seems she was unmarried, and the Didicois had very strict laws regarding such matters. Aha, said Orpi, as he brandished his sword left and right. Meanwhile, squads of fearsome musketeers began to arrive, breaking up the bar fight with shots of their muskets. Orpi and Marchulina slipped through the back streets before they could arrest them. Not long after, they found Graudin Monfalco sitting on a wooden bench. Friends, sorry that I didst not lend a hand, he said, crying inconsolably. You know I can't spare violence. I'm ever so sensitive. Wherefore art del Omar and Tribule? They have vanished into the thick air. Well, that's just great. This week on The Biden Files, Belarus hijacks a commercial airliner, New York's investigation of Trump heats up, Fed sees files on Ukraine, 
Trump's Commerce Department spied on Americans, Biden orders a Chinese lab investigated, and Rand Paul blames an 80s pop star for a suspicious package. No joke. These are the Biden files. Day 122, May 21st. Israel and Hamas have begun a ceasefire after 11 days of fighting in the Gaza Strip. That campaign has killed more than 230 Palestinians, including women and children, and at least 20 people in Israel proper. Another 1,620 people were wounded on both sides in the fighting. In a related story, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a resolution disapproving of the sale of $735 million in weapons to Israel. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Mark Bacan, and Rashida Tlaib introduced a similar resolution in the House. The sale of precision-guided weaponry was approved by the Biden administration before fighting broke out in Gaza. The House has approved a $2 billion spending bill to fortify security at the Capitol after the January 6th insurrection. The legislation was barely approved in a 213 to 212 vote after a group of Democratic progressives objected to spending millions more on the Capitol Police without knowing if police officers were involved in any way with that riot. The bill, however, is unlikely to advance in the Senate where Republicans have been trying to bury any discussion of the attack on the Capitol. The New York Attorney General's office has opened a criminal tax investigation into the Trump Organization's longtime chief financial officer. The investigation centers on Alan Weisselberg's compensation by the Trump Organization and whether taxes were paid on fringe benefits from Trump, including cars, tens of thousands of dollars in private school tuition for at least one of Weisselberg's grandchildren. Weisselberg has not been accused of any wrongdoing. Prosecutors are seeking to turn him into a cooperating witness. Day 123, May 22nd. The states of Iowa, Florida, and Texas all passed laws banning mask mandates in public schools. In Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill preventing schools from mandating masks for students, employees, or members of the public. In Texas, Greg Abbott issued an executive order prohibiting counties, public school districts, public health authorities, and government officials from requiring masks. Dr. Anthony Fauci said many Americans are misinterpreting the latest CDC guidance, advising that fully vaccinated people no longer needed to wear masks in most cases. People interpreted that as a signal you don't need masks anymore, which is certainly not the case. The Biden administration has reinstated the science responsible for producing the federal government's definitive reports on climate change. The Trump administration had removed Michael Kupperberg in November after he authored a report that painted a dire picture of economic impacts from global climate change that reportedly enraged Trump. Kupperberg coordinates climate change research across 13 federal agencies. The Trump administration secretly obtained the 2017 phone and email records of a CNN reporter. The Justice Department told Barbara Starr that prosecutors had obtained her phone and email records last year for two months between June 1st, 2017 to July 31st. Starr herself was not the target of an investigation. The Trump Justice Department also secretly obtained the phone records of three Washington Post reporters also in the same time period. All correspondents had covered the FBI's Russia investigation. Day 124, May 23rd. The NOAA offered a sobering preview of a summer of climate change, saying that their models show another above-normal hurricane season. Last year set records with 30 named storms, the most in recorded history. 12 of those made landfall in the United States to break records set in 1916. 
Ransomware attacks are continuing to play havoc with computer systems across the world, with a cyber attack on Ireland's health system paralyzing that country's health services for the past week. A Russian cyber criminal group known as Wizard Spider has claimed responsibility and asked for a $20 million ransom. Ireland's prime minister said its government would not pay. Two other hospital systems have also been hacked, including Scripps Health in San Diego, which is still trying to bring its systems back online two weeks after an attack. In New Zealand, a ransomware attack has paralyzed multiple hospitals across that nation. A ransomware attack attacked a big gas pipeline here, bringing gas from Texas to the East Coast. Washington's Trump Hotel raised its rates as a security tactic in the hope of deterring Trump-supporting QAnon supporters from staying there on a day which some believed would see Trump restored to office. That information, which police gleaned from a Forbes article, was subsequently confirmed in an intelligence briefing that was stolen by hackers from Washington's police department. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene compared COVID-19 safety measures to the treatment of Jews during the Holocaust. Those remarks drew condemnation from her own party, with Mitch McConnell saying Green's words were, quote, once again an outrageous and reprehensible comment. The GOP, however, has stopped short of calling for any formal discipline for Green. Texas has passed a law allowing people in that state to carry handguns without a license and to do away with background checks and training. The Republican-dominated legislature approved the measure, and Governor Greg Abbott says he will sign it. Police groups and gun control activists fiercely oppose that measure. The state has seen a recent wave of mass shootings. Day 125, May 24th. The Biden administration has extended special protections for Haitians temporarily living in the United States after they were displaced by a major earthquake in that nation in 2010. The TPS designation will be in place for 18 months and could protect as many as 150,000 Haitians living in the U.S. In 2017, the Trump administration ended TPS for nearly 60,000 Haitians, forcing them to leave. In a meeting on immigration in 2017, Trump said Haitians, quote, all have AIDS. An obscure security unit inside the Commerce Department ran a counterintelligence operation that collected information on hundreds of people inside and outside the department. The Investigations and Threat Management Service items covertly searched employees' offices at night, ran broad keyword searches of their emails trying to surface signs of foreign influence, and scoured American social media for critical comments about the census. In one instance, the unit opened a case on a 60-year-old retiree in Florida who had tweeted that the census would be manipulated to benefit the Trump party. Incoming commerce leaders from the Biden administration ordered items to pause all criminal investigations on March 10th, and on May 13th ordered the suspension of all activities after the preliminary results of a review were made public. Two Senate Democrats appealed to Republicans to support an independent commission to investigate the January 6th riot in what is seen as a last-ditch effort to preserve the filibuster. Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have been adamant a reckoning must come for the insurrection sparked by Trump at the Capitol, but both have also been opposed to progressives' push to eliminate the 60-vote threshold in the Senate. It is thought the independent commission could be a breaking point for the filibuster. New York impaneled a special grand jury to consider evidence in a criminal investigation into Trump's business dealings. 
The move indicates New York is close to filing criminal charges as the result of a two-year investigation into his taxes. The Trump Organization is alleged to have manipulated its real estate portfolio in a way that may have defrauded banks and insurance companies. It is also examining the compensation provided to top Trump Organization executives. Trump responded by calling the probe a witch hunt. Day 126, May 25th. Belarus apparently faked a bomb threat in order to force down a Ryanair commercial flight and arrest a dissident journalist. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko sent a MiG-29 fighter jet to intercept the commercial plane flying through the country's airspace and ordered the plane diverted and landed in the capital of Minsk. That dissident, Roman Protasevich, was arrested along with his girlfriend and charged both with inciting mass riots in Minsk. He was subsequently videotaped giving a coerced confession with visible signs of torture and beating on his face. The European Union responded by blocking all European airlines traveling over Belarus and banning Belarusian airlines from flying over the bloc's airspace or landing at its airports. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called it, quote, a shocking act that endangered the lives of more than 120 passengers, including U.S. citizens. President Biden moved to double FEMA's budget for extreme weather preparation ahead of hurricane and wildfire season. The U.S. logged 22 separate weather and climate-related disasters in 2020, each exceeded $1 billion in damages. The administration is also starting a new NASA initiative to develop next-generation climate data systems to track the impact of climate change. New York State federal prosecutors have seized email and iCloud accounts they believe belong to two former Ukrainian government officials, as well as the cell phone and iPad of a pro-Trump Ukrainian businessman. An attorney for Lev Parnas, an indicted former ally of Rudy Giuliani, wrote in a court filing the evidence seized, quote, likely includes email, text, and encrypted communications between Rudy Giuliani, Victoria Tensing, Trump, William Barr, high-level members of the Justice Department, presidential impeachment attorneys Jay Sukolo, Jane Raskin, and others, Senator Lindsey Graham, Congressman Devin Nunes, and others, all relating to the timing of the arrest and indictment of the defendants as a mean to prevent potential disclosures to Congress in the first impeachment inquiry of then-President Trump. The seizure came in relation to the Fed's investigation of Rudy Giuliani. And in a truly bizarre story, Kentucky Congressman Rand Paul blamed the receipt of a suspicious package containing white powder at his home on 1980s pop star Richard Marx. Paul cited Marx's criticism of him on social media about the potentially dangerous package, which, according to Fox News, contained an image of the senator in a neck brace, wearing a cast, using a crutch, and with a gun to his head. Law enforcement agencies, including the FBI Louisville office and a local sheriff's office, are investigating. Marx has denied any knowledge or responsibility. On Tuesday, the sheriff said the substance in the package appeared not to be toxic. Day 127, May 26th. The Justice Department has appealed a district court ruling that ordered it to release the entire memo used in 2019 to justify not charging Trump with obstruction of justice in the Russia investigation. It is unclear why Biden's DOJ is fighting that order. U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson accused the Justice Department and then Attorney General William Barr of being disingenuous to the court when describing Robert Mueller's findings about why he decided not to pursue obstruction charges. Jackson subsequently ordered that entire document released. However, the Justice Department only released a partially unredacted version of the Office of Legal Counsel memo. The memo was written at the same time that Barr sent a letter to Congress claiming the evidence in the still-secret report by the special counsel was insufficient 
sufficient to charge Trump with a crime. Mueller subsequently publicly challenged that characterization, and in fact, the report detailed multiple actions by Trump that many legal specialists say were clearly sufficient to ask a grand jury to indict him for obstruction of justice. Trump's former White House counsel has agreed to testify behind closed doors about Trump's efforts to obstruct that same investigation. Don McGahn will testify before the House Judiciary Committee next week about his role as a key witness in the Mueller report. A transcript will be released. In 2019, the Trump White House invoked executive privilege and ordered McGahn not to comply with a congressional subpoena for documents related to Mueller's investigation. McGahn spent more than 30 hours speaking to Mueller's investigators and told them that Trump asked him to have Mueller fired and later asked McGahn to deny news reports about that conversation. McGahn rebuffed both requests. President Biden has ousted four members of the Commission of Fine Arts. The seven-member independent federal agency had consisted entirely of commissioners appointed by Trump. Trump had also signed an executive order requiring, quote, beautiful architecture as the preferred style for federal buildings. Moderna said its vaccine provided strong protection in teens ages 12 to 17 in a late-stage trial. It now plans to submit the data to U.S. regulators in early June. Half of the adults in the United States are now fully vaccinated against coronavirus. Biden is seeking to have 70% of all adults vaccinated by July 4th. In a related story, the CDC has stopped investigating mild cases of COVID that have cropped up in about 100,000 people who have received the vaccine. Day 128, May 27th. President Biden has directed U.S. intelligence agencies to redouble their efforts to determine the origins of COVID-19, saying he was concerned the virus was accidentally leaked from a lab or might have been transmitted by an animal to humans. Biden directed intelligence officials to report back to him in 90 days and to keep Congress fully apprised. The World Health Organization is facing mounting criticism for an earlier report that dismissed the possibility that it had accidentally escaped from a Chinese laboratory. While scientists have said the virus is most likely naturally occurring, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that no one knows that 100% for sure, which is causing concern. New York prosecutors convened a special grand jury to consider evidence in the criminal investigation into Trump's business dealings. The panel is now expected to decide whether to indict Trump, executives at the Trump Organization, or the business itself. Trump is under investigation for a litany of alleged crimes, including financial manipulation, tax fraud, and concealment of assets. Manhattan prosecutors told at least one witness to prepare for grand jury testimony related to the criminal case against Trump, his company, and his executives. Trump responded to a lawsuit seeking to hold him accountable for the January 6th insurrection, saying he is protected under the First Amendment and had, quote, absolute immunity while president to contest the election. Trump's lawyers claimed that encouraging his supporters to oppose Congress from certifying the vote was a constitutionally protected act of the presidency. Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell has sued Trump for, quote, directly inciting the violence and then, quote, watching approvingly as the building was overrun. President Biden will meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin next month in Geneva. It will be the first face-to-face -face session between the two leaders and will take place against a backdrop of cyber warfare, tension in Belarus and Ukraine, and new nuclear proliferation. 58% of American voters support using reconciliation to pass Biden's American Jobs Plan and Americans Family Together Plan. Those plans would account for nearly $2 trillion. 53% of Republicans believe Trump is the actual president, not Biden. 66% of Republicans think Biden's victory was illegitimate. And 86% of Republicans say fealty to Trump 
is the most important thing in a prospective Republican candidate. These are the Biden files. Chuck Mertz spoke to Rebecca Bartel about evangelical capitalism, a curious form of worship sweeping Colombia. The prosperity gospel has overtaken America's Midwest, but in South America, it has sinister overtones tied to years of repression and government disappearances. Why is this reading of Christianity so dangerous? Find out on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Were you certain that the fact that <laughs> there was going to be violence going on in Colombia at the time? <laughs> No, no, this is this is actually quite unexpected. And, you know, I was actually in Colombia two weeks ago um, in the midst of the very beginnings of all of the violence going on. My my father in law, unfortunately, passed away. And so we made a trip down to Bogota and he died two days before sort of the the beginning of the massive um, protests and strikes. So we were right smack in the middle of it um, and so got sort of firsthand, firsthand, um, you know, proximity to, to what was going on and to the protests that were happening, that are still happening. Yeah, yeah. they're still happening, going on now for weeks with more yeah. than 40 people who have been killed. And we'll get back to that violence in a bit, but I really want to focus on your book because it ties into that violence, which is just... Absolutely. This, it's, this is just an amazing concept that nobody else is discussing when it comes to what is taking place in Colombia. You start by describing a conversation you had with Fernanda. Uh, she yeah. said that she is uh, she was sitting across from you at this coffee shop at the MIC. I don't want to try to ruin my pronunciation. Let's see. Misión Charismatica Internacional Campus. Well done. Yes. Very good. Yes. See? Three years of horrible Spanish grades, and look what there happened. There you go. Look at look at that. Yeah, I mean, I had I had lived in Colombia for eight years. I did my master's degree down there, and I worked in human rights for a number of years before starting my PhD. And so I was familiar with these mega churches that were increasingly growing. I got to Colombia in 2001, just the beginning of the Uribe administration, and you'll hear that name, that the former president who is behind the scenes doing a lot of puppeteering right now. Um, and part of the reason that the kind of fascist mafia state um, action that we're seeing in Colombia is really a, 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 an, on, you know, a, an ongoing thing that's been going on since, since Uribe and even before that. But just when I got to Colombia, um, religious freedom had been constituted in the you know, for 10 years, no more than that. Until 1991 with the new constitution, uh, Catholicism was the only officially recognized religion in Colombia. And after that constitution, uh, that constitutional reform, there is a proliferation of all kinds of different kinds of Christianity and religious kind of expression. And mega churches, these evangelical, sometimes called neo-Pentecostal churches. And when I say mega church, I'm talking about any church that has more than a thousand members. But this particular church that you're talking about where Fernanda was and where I spent a lot of time doing research has around 20,000 people coming through its doors on any given Sunday throughout its seven services on, you know, on the weekend. Um, so we're talking thousands of people coming through the doors of this church. And Fernanda was a person that I spent a lot of time with doing my ethnographic fieldwork. And she one day had, I, you know, I was in church with her as she was, you know, I was spent a lot of time in these services where she had given a tithe. She'd given an offering on her credit card. 
And after the service, we were having coffee, as you mentioned, and I asked her, did you go into debt for God? And she said, well, yes, of course. Debt is a sign of faith. And that was a moment in the research where I was like, well, there's something going on here that's, that's really interesting and really problematic. Sure, interesting and problematic, but it's important to understand that the attraction to the person who wants to go into that debt, not that they are just being duped, you know, that right, this exactly. is just some kind of con game. So what is the attraction of putting yourself into a position that is harm, potentially harmful to you, debt, in order to practice or experience your faith? Is this an extension of Christian martyrdom? Well, that's a really, thanks for asking that question. I think so many people make this really quick conclusion like oh well this is some sort of perversion of christianity oh you know this is these christians are wrong they're doing christianity wrong and um and i and i think what's important to preface this you know what i'm you know how i'm going to answer your question is to say christianity you know there's no data for christian there's no there's no pure christianity there's no um essential christianity as much as many christians would like to say that there is right and that's one of the reasons that you know when we when i think of christianity think of it as a concept think of christianity or any kind of religious tradition or expression as something that operates as a matrix of power in symphony with other forms of power and social and cultural and historical context, right? And so in the context of Colombia, um, these this kind of prosperity Christianity, it's very different than the kind of prosperity Christianity you might see in the US, right? That you might see in Joel Austin's church, right? <laughs> like it's it's a little different because as I say in the book, it's coming from oftentimes um it's a recipe for survival rather than ostentation, right? For a lot of people, this kind of faith in the market, this kind of faith in debt, in the financial system, isn't only being preached in the churches, it is being preached by all of the structures of power that are trying to financialize Colombia's economy. This week, we have new music from Mike Lust. Stepping out from his stint as frontman for Tight Phantoms, his new LP, Demented Wings, drops June 18th. This is the world radio premiere of Danceteria. Catch the new video this Friday everywhere videos are.
complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Many people after they die, maybe these these burial methods, they it, it just seems like mitigating, you know, the risk. Your, your body's dead. You got to do something with it. You got to get rid of it some some way, somehow. So to get around this, people have started donating their bodies to science to make something of their death. Their death isn't just something that happens and they have, that they have to deal with. It's something that could be used to the benefit of, future, of the future society. Um, but the problem is, think about where your body is going to if you do donate it to science. It goes to the 1%. It goes to doctors. It goes to museums. It goes to white-collar laboratories. It goes to the military. It goes oh, you to, bet it goes it to the go, military. Goes to defense, defense industry individuals. They're gonna make you into a into a test dummy for sure. I have it on uh, personal experience. I mm-hmm. had a great aunt that was used to test artillery cartridges. Unbelievable! She How? thought that she was donating her body to science, mm-hmm. and when I, because of course I was the only one to ask, mm-hmm. I asked, "What science is Doris being used for?" And they said. We strapped her to a chair, and we shot a howitzer at her, and I was shocked. Mm. I was flummoxed. I have a, I have a similar story about a, about a relative who was uh, who was, who donated their body to science, and they were used. Guess where they were used? Oh, I can't even imagine. They were used, I don't I don't want to say any brand names, but they were used in a major automotive uh, in major automotive. Uh, company as a crash test dummy that is hideous that is absolutely hideous and that is not the science that you want your no. body to be used for it really no. isn't um yeah so it goes to they they don't care about your bodies their body is just one of a a bunch of bodies don't you want your body to go to someone who is going to truly respect and love and appreciate it absolutely uh, absolutely and that's why uh you can donate your body directly to the transhumanist movement Ooh, wow so and, and this comes there's some history this is new to me there's some yeah and there's some history behind this uh yeah, transhumanists uh are people that who who work who are citizen scientists they're certainly one of the you know leading citizen science groups out there uh uh leading diy citizen science groups out there they're certainly on the fringe of what would be considered sort of your 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 inner not your inner science right you know they're 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 sort of the the they're solar punks in their own regard exactly um well they do research on their bodies they they they're trying to make their bodies better they're trying to meld their bodies with technology and ultimately you know make themselves better versions of uh, of humans through modifications through implants through all sorts of things like that they used to uh to just to go scavenge local biomedical research centers or or even sometimes go to their local doctors or hospitals and, and sort of pick through the tissue bins um, and, and look for loose scraps that they can use in their research which is incredibly punk it's so yeah it's really punk unfortunately you know again we have uh, we have big government uh recently making legislation that prohibits these actions as unsafe unbelievable unbelievable i mean you know it's it's, it's how are we supposed to have innovation if in, if the government wants to make it illegal for individuals to get their access to flesh to flesh with which to experiment with flesh that is not being used anymore for, uh, that is going straight to the landfill for right. the pigs to eat <laughs> exactly eureka cast now broadcasting saturdays 8 to 9 p.m on lumpen radio
The Lump and Weekend Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Weekend Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.